There you go. Well, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. And we will be continuing in this wonderful Gospel as we discern these final hours. These Really, we're at the point of Matthew's Gospel where we are uh, we're seeing Jesus' final hours before His crucifixion. Um, and this is where we will be leading up to Resurrection Sunday here at the end of March. Resurrection Sunday is just a few weeks away. And I pray that through this month of March that you are mindful of that. That you are intent in praying and meditating on the truth that our Savior suffered greatly in our stead. We deserve the suffering. We deserve the punishment. We deserve the torment that He went through. Yet He did it on our behalf. Took it upon Him. So. And so as we're reading through this, I would like for us to meditate. If you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in Matthew 27, beginning in verse 11. Last week we meditated upon Judas and his betrayal, but also his remorse and the, the tragic end of a corrupt soul that betrays our Savior. And now we transition into verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Verse 20. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. And so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. That's right. Father God, you have caused us this morning to read these words for a reason. And I pray, God, that you would cause us to hear you speak clearly about these events of your Son, Jesus Christ, 
and the Roman authorities and the religious elite who hand him over to take on the punishment rightly due us. They delivered the sacrifice for our sin. And they did so in their guilt and in their shame and even in their sin. They handed over the Savior of their sin. And so God, I pray this morning you would cause us to hear clearly through your word. Cause us to meditate on the truth of these events. The truth of our salvation and the truth that your son willingly took everything upon himself for us. Even the shame and the false charges. He took that sin upon himself. So Father, help us. Speak to us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Proceed. Let's just be honest as we're thinking through this text. The church can be too political. Amen? Uh, American Christians particularly who are affluent and apathetic and come to church either at Easter or Christmas if they're really dedicated would rather spend the rest of the year dealing with the politics of our culture and the politics of the church. They don't really understand or really think about the truth of the gospel. Can we just be honest? How many Christians do we know who would rather talk politics and play the political game and would not really dedicate themselves to Christ and the humility that comes from that? I mean, there are forces amongst God's elect that see the dominance of the church in earthly rule, and they see this as God's design for His kingdom. Right? There is a political movement amongst evangelicals that says that God has called us to establish a new political authority, and that's the role of the church. There's another theology called Kingdom Now Theology that falls far short of the, of, of the Christ intent. Christ himself had an intent for the kingdom of heaven. And there is a movement called Kingdom Now Theology that proponents believe that God has lost control over the world and has handed it over to Satan when Adam and Eve sinned. That's the theology. There's problems with that for sure. The theology goes even further. God has been trying to reestablish control over the world by seeking a special group of believers. And here's how they term them. They're known as covenant people or overcomers. That's the language. When you hear in a, quote, church that you are an overcomer, that's really part of the kingdom now theology that begins with the premise that God has somehow lost control. That's the root of this kingdom now theology. And these overcomers will bring all earthly kingdoms under God's authority. So God has called the church, who are the true overcomers, to overwhelm earthly kingdoms and rule in God's place. That's kingdom now theology. You're hearing some problems with that. The church fails miserably 
When we call for a theocracy, do you know what a theocracy? That's a political, religious movement. In other words, religion rules the dominant political structure. Uh, and uh, The church fails miserably when we call for a theocracy. Because that theocracy is supposed to overpower all kingdoms. But the problem is, when you go into a theocracy mindset, you're actually overpowering the true teaching of Jesus who is the Christ concerning his kingdom of heaven now. Really, when you, when you call for a theocracy, you're, you're actually replacing the true kingdom of heaven for something that we want. And that is not what God has called the church to. Why do I bring this in? Because Matthew's gospel focuses on the role of Jesus in the fulfillment of kingdom prophecy. Back in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Jesus himself said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Those are his words. And that's a continual theme throughout all of Matthew's gospel. The kingdom of heaven is referenced 50 times in Matthew's gospel alone. And within those 50 mentions, Jesus spoke of the kingdom 44 times. That's a continual theme in Matthew's gospel, kingdom. So this is why kingdom now theology is important to understand because it's twisting what the gospels are saying. And this scene here where Jesus is before uh, Pilate and the, and the earthly kings, this relates. At birth, let's remember this, at Jesus' birth, the Magi looked for the king of the Jews back in Matthew 2. And now at his trial before Pilate, Pilate asked Jesus if he was the king of the Jews. So this concept here, this theme of kingdom and king of the Jews is important throughout all of Matthew's gospel. And and we have to realize what's going on here. There's a battle of kingdoms that has played out ever since the Garden of Eden. There is a battle of kingdoms that has been going on since the Garden of Eden. And these two kingdoms between heaven and hell wage war. And human history is the battlefield. We are part of this. Do you realize that? The kingdom of men sadly fights alongside the kingdom of Satan but not in the end. Kings and kingdoms, here's what the song says, will all pass away. Right? And they'll all pass away under the reign of Jesus Christ who is granted the throne of heaven. That's the gospel promise. And we're seeing that played out here in these final hours of Jesus before Pilate the governor. But we got to remember that God has said from the very beginning that His kingdom will come. That at at the Garden of Eden, at the fall of Adam and Eve, even before then, that we don't really know all the details, we just have hints in Scripture, that even before the Garden of Eden, there there was a spiritual battle of heaven between demonic forces, satanic forces, and God Himself. And that's how Satan ends up here. But we, as God's created, handed power of this world over to Satan in our sin because we chose to listen to him rather than our father. That's that's where we are. But God's prophet Isaiah, Isaiah has been called the great prophet. (laughs) Isaiah foresaw that how this kingdom is going to play out, it comes through what he calls the suffering servant. 
And he describes the suffering servant as a silent lamb that we see here in Jesus standing before Pilate. Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 9. Familiar passage for many. Isaiah speaking of the suffering servant who is clearly Jesus Christ. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. That's Isaiah. And Isaiah prophesied what we just read, that as Jesus was being accused, as he was standing before trial, he said nothing. Stood in silence. A biblical imagery of the suffering servant. Jesus' great suffering. He is that silent lamb led to slaughter here. Jesus, remember he was falsely charged. There were two offenses according to Isaiah. And when we read the gospel accounts, these two charges were lived out. Here's the two charges. That the silent lamb would lead a violent uprising against Rome, blasphemy, lying against the Mosaic law. So you have leading an uprising and lying against, or in blasphemy. Those are the two charges. You got blasphemy and you have a political upheaval. And now both charges are levied against Jesus here. And Matthew's account of the trial of Jesus before Pilate, you're going to see these charges. As king of Rome, you can say, say that Pilate was a king of Rome. He was not the emperor, but he was a king, a representative of the Roman Empire. He heard the case against Jesus as the chief priest stood by and accused him. Just like Satan does. How, how does Satan accuse? He kind of stands off to the side and does this. And he whispers, and he's the accuser. And so Jesus is standing before Pilate as the chief priests and the elders are whispering and causing trouble and wagging the finger. Let's go in verse 11, Matthew 27. Verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And look at Jesus, and he does say something. He says, You have said so. You have said so. He takes Pilate's words and says, yeah, that's what you said. Let's unpack this. The, the interaction here between Pilate and Jesus, it shows us a trial where Jesus took upon himself the suffering. He takes upon himself the accusation. He takes upon himself the condemnation that is rightly due us. All of us are due all of that. God's Son, He, he stands trial before a mortal man here, a governor, a king. And he suffered the accusation and the condemnation. So that, here's why. So that those who are redeemed, those of the church, could stand without fear of condemnation in the presence of the Father. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's standing before Pilate the governor and taking on the condemnation and the accusations that are rightly due us. 
That's part of the gospel. So evangelical theology calls this interaction with Pilate a sign of what is called the joyous exchange. This is what theologians call this scene. The joyous exchange. It's joyous because Jesus stood in place of the condemned. This is important for gospel ministry. This is important for understanding the gospel message that Jesus stands in our place where we are rightly condemned. He stood condemned before Pilate. That's called the joyous exchange. He has exchanged himself in our place. If we don't understand that part of the gospel, we're missing it. We're missing it. The Son of God was condemned by mortal men on behalf of mortal men. Don't let that sink in for a minute. He was condemned by mortal men who are sinful sinners. I like sinful sinners. (laughs) On behalf of mortal men who are sinful sinners. Matthew, he he uses the title governor here to show the power of men against the title king. Notice governor versus king here. The title king says two different things, two two different perspectives. The title king says to a Gentile mind what Christ says to the Jewish mind. Pilate's term for king of the Jews, he actually says it as an insult. Because there's only one emperor, one king in the mind of a Roman. And that would be Caesar. But in the covenant language of scripture of the Old Testament prophets and the Old Testament covenants, Christ reigns superior to all earthly kings. Notice the difference here. Now, this encounter between Pilate as the power of Rome against Jesus, who is the power of the kingdom of heaven. Here's the conflict. It sets the stage for centuries of encounters between church and Rome. Even now, really, if you think about it. The power of the kingdom of heaven is right now even still in contrast, stark contrast to Rome or Babylonian imagery of evil men and kingdoms. It's a constant spiritual warfare. I mean, this encounter between Pilate and Jesus. And we've got to understand here what is being charged. Pilate's question here in verse 11. The charge of king of the Jews. That was a political charge. That was a political charge against the empire of Rome. Treason against Rome was the only charge with any action that Pilate could offer. Because it was a civil court. The key issue in the Jewish trial that we looked at was blasphemy. That would have been a religious charge. Christ, who claimed to be the Son of God. The key issue in the Roman trial was treason, a political issue. Blasphemy was the issue with the elders and the chief priests, but blasphemy meant nothing to Pilate. The charge of blasphemy didn't matter to Pilate. He, he could have cared less. What he had to hear, and this is how the chief priests and the elders twist things to make it a political thing so that Pilate would have to listen to the trial and the charge of treason. 
The only accusation that the state can bring against even now, this is what we see here, the only accusation that the state can bring against the church, even now, is the same as the charges that Rome brought against Jesus. That of political upheaval. This is why there's a Christian worldview battle against secular worldview thinking. See where we're going? Enemies of the gospel in the secular world can only hate the kingdom of heaven, can only hate the church for its subversion to the power of the secular culture. So when we are being accused as Christians by the secular world, the only charge they can bring against us is that we are somehow opposed to their secular way of thinking and their secular power. I think there's some truth in that. I hope. Amen. Would you say amen to that, that there is some truth to that charge? We can take that charge. Yeah, okay, yeah, you're right. We're we're opposed to the secular culture and the power that you have. Yeah, because we stand part of that. We, We stand apart from that. We stand in a different world, a different culture, don't we? We're part of the kingdom of heaven. So the charge against the church is true when the secular world brings it because somehow we are subverting the power that they have. Amen? And we shouldn't be afraid of that. Because here's the thing. Here's how Satan works. He endeavors to make the church especially hated, and he makes the church suspect in this very issue that as Christ raised up his kingdom, all kingdoms of the world are undermined. All kingdoms of the world are undermined because the kingdom of heaven is now at hand. And that's the problem here with Rome. Here's the problem with Pilate. When he says, are you the king of the Jews? Look what Jesus said in verse 11. You said so, or you have said so. Now, King James says, thou sayest. I like that. Thou sayest. Right? You said it. Not me. And here's Jesus. Here's the beauty in verse 11 of how Jesus responded. And this is how we can learn to respond to secular criticisms against the church. Listen to this. This is what Jesus says. This is really an idiom. You know that language that, that y'all remember English class? Right? An idiom. Some of you are, yeah, I remember that. It's an idiom. It's 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 half yes, it's a half no. Here's what Jesus is saying. It's half yes, it's half no. Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responded with, You said so. Using the same words. Are you the king of the Jews, Jesus? Well, Pilate, you said so. Takes his own words back to him. But here's, here's what he's doing. His reply fundamentally affirmed Pilate's question. But in the way Jesus answered, he refuses to go deeper into the question. On one hand, he's affirming it, but then Jesus is taking control in his response by, we're not going to talk about this much more. We're done. That's what you said. And he just leaves it. Hands everything back to the accuser. If Jesus had answered yes, he would have been immediately guilty in Roman court and the trial would be over. And had he done so, Jesus would have confessed to the crime of treason. But the truth is, Jesus was not treasonous. You cannot be treasonous when your authority is over the people accusing you of treason. Make sense? Jesus did not conduct treason. He established the true kingdom that stood above the Roman Empire and Jesus is the king of the Jews but not the kind of king that Pilate thought about. 
So everything that Jesus says here in verse 11 is true. You said so. I am the king of the Jews, really. That's what he implies. But he doesn't admit to treason. Can't. Jesus can't admit to treason there. So the words between Jesus and Pilate, here's the other thing here in verse 11. What Jesus says here, you have said so, this is the final words recorded by Matthew from our Lord before his agony on the cross. At this point, we don't hear anything else from Jesus' lips until we read about his crucifixion and he's hanging on the cross. Here's what we see here as well. When Jesus responds to his accusers in this trial, he shows that they do not really understand it. They don't really get him. All sinners misunderstand Jesus. That's just, that's just a fundamental fact. They get him wrong, and they miss the point of the gospel, but Jesus was held on trial even for them, accused by someone that he was, uh, uh, being someone that he was not. That's what it is. And we, this has never changed. It's the same thing. It's the same face-off between the power of the gospel and the power of the world that is ongoing even now. Amen? That's what's happening here. Now let's look here at verses 12 and 13. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, and this is Matthew's, verse 12 is Matthew's kind of sidebar comment. It's almost like a flashback. In verse 11, it's Pilate and Jesus interacting, but then in verse 12, Matthew kind of gives a little bit of uh, a flashback. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, now we're back into the scene, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Verse 14, but he gave him no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Matthew shares the silence here. You can say the silent truth. That although Jesus replied to Pilate's initial inquiry about the king of the Jews and that charge, Jesus was silent before the accusations of the chief priests and the elders. But notice what happened in verse 13. Pilate now kind of tries to use the accusations from the chief priests and the elders to get Jesus to speak. And he doesn't respond to that. The Jewish religious leaders... They're not really present here in in Pilate's court because of the looming responsibilities of the Passover. I mean, this scene here was very early on Friday morning. John's Gospel tells us that the Jews did not enter Pilate's praetorium, his, his, his palace. They didn't go in so that they might be clean before they officiated over the Passover. That's John 18, 28. So that little detail tells us that the elders and the chief priests were not in the room, but their accusations carried in. And Pilate says, don't you hear, Jesus, what they say about you? How many of us fall under peer pressure? Don't you know what they're saying about you, Christian? How many of us have been guilty of that and faced that? Notice Pilate's second question to Jesus here in verse 13. Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? I mean, we as Christians, don't you know what they say about your faith? 
if, if, if any of us are news junkies and we watch what is called news now, these news programs and things, that's how the, the interviewer will try to trip up an evangelical when they bring the evangelical on for an interview. Any time an evangelical comes on to a news program, they're there as the scapegoat. Just know that. That's the intent. And that's what they, this is the language they use. Don't you hear, evangelical Christian, what they say about you? And Jesus' reply is silence. And, and, and I mean, that echoes his control. It echoes, it, it, it loudly communicates. His silence is so loud, it controls the conversation. Are you hearing this, Christian? We don't have to be boisterous and in charge of the conversation. A lot of times, if we just follow Jesus' model here and we're just silent, the truth speaks louder. Amen? And so he's demonstrating Jesus here. What we see, we see his perfection. We see his innocence in his silence. And notice how Pilate responds in verse 14. To his dismay, to his amazement, Jesus gave no answer. I mean, I mean, this only intensifies the accusations from the Jewish leaders. And, and I think what we're beginning to see here is Pilate clearly sees the truth that Jesus was innocent. He knows what's going on. The Jewish leaders were stirring up trouble. And, and, and Pilate has to deal with this. There are, but this, notice how Pilate has to deal with it. This was the time of the Passover. There were political matters to consider. Peace needed to be maintained. And the sensitivities of the Passover in Pilate's territory, had to be navigated tenderly. So here's the political gamesmanship that's happening. Look here in verses 15 through 17. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom, notice, they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas? Or Jesus, who is called Christ. Very interesting interaction here. Verse 16 tells us there was a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. The idea here of notorious, when you look at the word here, um, episimon, that, that Greek word can be translated really two different ways. It could be translated as bad, which is notorious, or it could be translated not so bad. Definitely not good. So I, one way I think, it, I, one way to translate this, and I saw this in one translation that was not a popular, it was a theologian's translation. You could actually translate this, there was a popular prisoner called Barabbas. Bad, but not so bad. But very popular. Notorious, when you're notorious, you have some popularity. Not necessarily the best popularity, but it's there. So Barabbas, he was a political rebel. He was on trial. And Pilate offered his annual gift to the people. Again, this is part of his political movement, his political appeasement to the masses to keep the peace. One political prisoner was released on an annual, as an annual gesture. It was a regular thing. It was an act of goodwill from the Roman occupiers. At the time of the Passover we will release one political prisoner to you. I mean, this time Barabbas was chosen. But Pilate wanted to keep his political cards close to his chest. He saw a way out of his predicament with Jesus. 
Offer up a choice to the people. Barabbas, the murderous rebel, or Jesus, the man of peace. Now, any political... That's really politically smart. I want to let the decision be made by the people, and obviously they'll let the innocent one go. That was the, that's the plan. But clearly, Satan manipulated and made things different. Now, notice how Pilate introduces Jesus to the crowds in verse 17. Jesus, who is called the Christ. Pilate did not call Jesus the king of the Jews. He pres- when, he's, when he's introducing him to the crowd. He doesn't call him king of the Jews. He says, the one who is called the Christ. They called him the Christ. Diverting the truth. Pilate, play, he's playing the political game here. Because many so-called messiahs, if you know the history, many so-called messiahs had stirred up trouble for Rome and Jerusalem by this point. It was a common occurrence for charlatans to call themselves the Messiah. Okay, here's another one. They called him the Christ too. Do you want him? So he's playing the political game. All had been, and whenever these so-called messiahs had stirred up trouble, there had, they had been political troublemakers to Rome. That's really what was their purpose. That's why they were false messiahs. They were treasonous. They were insurrectionists. And Rome would immediately crucify them and immediately after that, their followers would scatter, proving that they were false. But Jesus here is different for, for sure. No credible evidence convicted Jesus of insurrection. Nothing. At best, Jesus amassed followers because he was not political. And Pilate knew it. Verse 18 or he knew, here's why he knows what's going on. He knows that they, the chief priests and the elders, called him the Christ. And in verse 18, for he knew that it was out of envy that they, the chief priests, had delivered him up. Envy. That little, that little detail there in verse 18 tells us Pilate knew what was going on. He saw the truth. They were jealous. Because envy is the reverse coin of jealousy. That's, that's what, that's why John stopped. The the great theologian calls it. Envy is the reverse coin of jealousy. And these chief priests were pridefully jealous. But Pilate had to play the political game here. See, the, the political gamesmanship centered between Pilate and these religious folks You see, even pagan Romans understood that envy and jealousy was not a virtue and they don't play that game with those who are jealous and envious. Even pagan Romans understood the nature of honest character. They understood that. Can you? Pagan Romans understood virtue as a good thing. And Pilate saw the truth. Even his wife, in verse 19, Pilate's wife even saw what was going on. She went, this is how a good wife can help a husband. You hear me? This is not manipulation. This is good advice. Men, you have a good wife, she's your helper. And Pilate, a pagan, had a good wife, come to him in verse 19, have nothing to do with that righteous man talking about Jesus, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. The truth keeps coming out, doesn't it? 
Pilate had to play the political game. And, and, and as a result, he was as culpable as, as, as in blamed for Jesus' death as the chief priests were, and so, and same thing with Judas. Pilate is just as guilty. You see, Pilate was known as an able administrator because the reputation of Roman governors were, that they were typically, typically regarded for a sense of fair play. But here's what's going on between Rome and, and these, uh, elder, and these chief priests and elders. Pilate's reputation carried a contempt for the Jewish chief priest in the council of elders. He had a contempt for them. And in turn, they hated Pilate. And because of that, there was this tit for tat, and the elders and the chief priests would constantly find ways to annoy Pilate. So this was not the first time that they had a political game. See how God uses providence? He uses the sin of evil men who play political games with one another in his gospel fulfillment. But in the end, this tit-for-tat political power play, it actually delivers Jesus to the slaughter. The innocent lamb, the silent lamb, comes to the slaughter for sinners, and Pilate loses the game. The Hellenistic Jewish philosopher Philo, he shared, here's what he writes, he, he he, he shares what King Agrippa says about Pilate. Notice this. King Agrippa described Pilate as a man of very inflexible disposition and very merciless as well as very obstinate. That's how they thought about one another. So it's easy to condemn Pilate. It's easy to condemn Judas. It's easy to condemn these chief priests. But it's also easy for us to overlook our own sinful attitudes that are just like these men. Amen? I mean, anyone who speaks to avoid full commitment to Jesus seeks to avoid the pain that accompanies this commitment. You see, the secular world will certainly cause trouble for the Christian. That's what they do. But we often seek ways to avoid this inconvenience because it's painful. We don't want conflict. Because Jesus brings this conflict and this inconvenience to anyone who is a pagan. And I want to start calling secular mindset pagan here from this point forward. It's really the same. Don't we often as Christians want to avoid this too? Because we're just like Pilate. We want to play the political game to avoid the obvious truth. Jesus was clearly innocent. And there was clearly something about him that Pilate could not avoid, but he did so at all costs. Same thing with us. There's something about Jesus. He's innocent, he's holy, he's righteous, he's he's all authority and power, but there's something about Jesus that we want to avoid as well. Let's just be honest. It's easy for us to condemn Pilate. It's easy for us to condemn Judas, but... Both of them played the political game and both of them lost. So when it comes to us as sinners, when it comes to Jesus, we're going to play the political game trying to navigate around Jesus and the truth of who He is and we will lose every single time. There are four times that Pilate attempts to evade any kind of decision about Jesus. 
what to do with him. He sent Jesus to Herod. We don't see this in Matthew's account, but in Luke's account, Luke chapter 23, Herod sends, I mean, Pilate sends Jesus to Herod since Herod was in charge of the Galilean jurisdiction. And Jesus was a Galilean. So he tries to avoid there. I'll just send him to another political opponent. Pilate tried to release Jesus by means of clemency rather than trying to release Jesus in the sense of justice. Justice demands that Jesus should have been released. But instead of Pilate releasing him under justice and the right thing to do, he tries to release him by means of clemency. I'll I'll do it under goodwill. I'll, I'll, I'll let him go but never declare he's innocent. If the crowds chose to release Jesus, Pilate would not be shamed at all. But again, this again, it, it was it was a political move that backfired when the chief priests and the elders in Matthew twenty seven twenty, the chief priests and the elders, what did they do? They persuaded, they manipulated the the crowd to ask for Barabbas. Again, we see another scene of a mob rule here. You see how mobs throughout this narrative of the final week of Jesus continue coming up. Thirdly, Pilate tried to appease through half measures. I mean, he had Jesus scourged in hopes that this would pacify the religious leaders. We see that in verse 26. Actually, 25 and 26. And all the people, when Pilate was washing his hands, verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning... Here's where Pilate's problem was. He wanted to appease the crowd without taking a firm stand. He took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent for this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Verse 26, Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So at least Pilate says, Well, at least I had him scourged. Trying to appease the crowd. And then lastly, there as he's washing his hands, Pilate, he protested his innocence, not Jesus' innocence. You notice that? Pilate is is claiming his innocence of Jesus' innocent blood. That's an irony. And he had an act of political theater by washing his hands publicly. All about himself. I mean, just like Pilate... We know those who are on the fence regarding the gospel. They want to leave the truth about Jesus to someone else or something else. Or like Pilate, those who hear the gospel who are on the fence, they try to find a half-hearted compromise, don't they? A half-hearted commitment to Jesus Really for the wrong reasons. I mean, a very common one is, well, Jesus, he's a good guy. He was a great teacher, but I'm not going to go any farther, right? That's half-hearted. Or worse yet, here's another half-hearted way to commit or not commit. A half-hearted sinner will actually make a public profession of Jesus as Lord while simultaneously denying the depth of the truth of who Jesus is and denying any connection with the soul. That's a half-hearted connection. So how do we take this home? Folks, I'm sorry. I see what time it is. There's a common theme here in Matthew's account of Jesus' great suffering. And that's what I've called 
these last weeks. That's what I've called this Passion Week, His Great Suffering. And there's a theme here, a theme of betrayal, of, of really betrayal and handing over are two, it's really the same idea. The Greek word here is parodidomai, and it can be translated hand over, it can be translated betrayal. We see it in different ways here, but it's the same Greek word, parodidomai. It's a consistent theme. Pilate handed over Jesus to the envious chief priests who they had handed him over to Pilate. And then Pilate hands over Jesus to the mob that the chief priest stirred up. I mean, Jesus was Pilate's scapegoat to maintain the peace. Handing him over. Jesus is consistently handed from one uh, one accusation to another throughout this entire narrative, isn't he? Just hand him over. Hand him over. Take it, Give him to somebody else to deal with. It's not my problem. It's a consistent Issue, But handing over is the same thing, same word, same meaning of betrayal. Judas betrayed Jesus by handing him over to the chief priest. The chief priest betrayed Jesus by handing him over to the Roman authorities. The Roman authorities betrayed Jesus by handing him over to the crowds, to the mob, back to the chief priests. Get them out of We don't want anything to do with him. You see, you see, the plight of the sinner is that we're guilty of handing Jesus over as a scapegoat for our peace. Hearing that? Because the truth of Jesus Christ is that He that He comes to stir up the sinner. He's here to stir up and cause trouble in a fallen sinful world by the very nature of His authority as King of all kings and the King of heaven. By that very nature, Jesus doesn't have to try very hard. His very presence will stir up the sinner. He doesn't have, Jesus doesn't have to be vicious at all. He's not. By, by His very nature, he's, He is the King of Peace. He is our peace, according to Micah 5.5. 5. And that very truth of who He is will stir up this embattled world that we are in. I mean, when the sinner, someone who hears the gospel, when they hear the truth of who Jesus is and the truth that Jesus takes on our sin upon Himself, the mistake here is that we will use Jesus as a scapegoat so that we are peaceful and we don't really have to deal with it. We don't have to confess. We don't have to submit. Oh, if we just hand Jesus over, okay, I'm at peace now. Everything's good. That's what Pilate has done. I mean, Jesus prophesied in Matthew 17, 22, He prophesied that He would be betrayed into the hands of men and that He would be handed over to be crucified. Matthew 26, 2. Jesus knew this was coming. He was going to be betrayed into the hands of men. He was going to be handed over to be crucified. This is what we call in theology the great exchange. The great exchange. The joyous exchange where Jesus, the innocent Lamb, is handed over in exchange for our sin. Our sin is laid upon Him. This great exchange where the innocent Lamb, Jesus, is exchanged for our sins. When Judas handed Jesus over to the priests, he did it. But why does he do it? Why did Judas do it? Judas did this out of greed, didn't he? 
The chief priests and the elders hand Jesus over. Why do they do it? This is what we just read in verse 18 of Matthew 27. They handed Jesus over because they were envious. They were jealous. Pilate hands Jesus over to the soldiers to be crucified. Why? In verse 26. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands, etc., etc., and he hands him over to the, he delivers him over to be crucified. He hands him over to the soldiers. Why? Because Pilate was a coward. He didn't want to be a true leader. He was a politician. I mean, we, we commonly reply to these charges of greed, envy, cowardice. We see these levied against Jesus but it would be the same as Pilate's response. We, we, we do this. Why? Don't we also say, why? What has Jesus done? Or maybe even worse, we say, why? I'm a good person. What have I done? Amen? But just as Pilate heard no word from Jesus, I think we too receive no rational reply if that's our attitude before hearing the, I mean, as we hear the gospel, as we are confronted with the gospel. If we do not, I mean, if our answer to Jesus is why, what crime have I committed? He has no authority and no response to us. He doesn't have to speak back at all. The truth is the truth. We're sinners before a holy and righteous Savior, aren't we? The late theologian, and I'll close this, the late theologian John R.W. Stott. I don't know if anyone's ever read John Stott. He passed away several years ago. You've read John Stott. Blah. John Stott was great. Now, in his latter years, this is, I'm just, anyway, John Stott in his latter years took on a theology of annihilationism, and a lot of people said, where are you going with this? But the rest of his stuff is amazing, okay? John Stott summarizes how we're to think about this political gamesmanship. There was a game going on here. And here's how John Stott helps us think about this as this political game handed Jesus over to the cross. Listen to this. Herod and Pilate, Gentiles and Jews... They said had together conspired against Jesus. We see that in Acts chapter 4. More important still, we ourselves are also guilty. If we, are, if we were in their place, we would have done what they did. Indeed, we have already done it. For whenever we turn away from Christ, we are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace, according to Hebrews 6. We too sacrifice Jesus to our greed like Judas, to our envy like the priests, to our ambition and pride like Pilate. Were you there when they crucified my Lord, the old Negro spiritual asks? And we must answer, yes, we were. Not as spectators only, but as participants. Guilty participants. Plotting, scheming, betraying, bargaining, and handing Jesus over to be crucified. We may try to wash our hands of responsibility like Pilate, but our attempt will be as futile as his. For there is blood on our hands before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading us to faith and worship. We have to see it as something done by us leading to repentance. I think this is a wonderful thought to meditate and ponder as we now transition into worship at the Lord's table. I mean, Jesus gave us this gift 
of remembering his sacrifice and all that he suffered for us. But if we come to this table with any other attitude other than I am as guilty of handing Jesus over to the cross as Pilate was, as Judas was, as the chief priests were, if we come with any other attitude, we are too prideful and we are not seeing the truth of the sacrifice made for us. And so let's, let's pray, and as the men are coming who are going to be distributing the elements, let's have this attitude and thought. The Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 11, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord... We are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This is the attitude of prayer that we are called to have at this moment. Let me pray. Father God Almighty, we thank you for your word and the reminder of the truth of the trial and the accusations against Jesus that led him to the cross in our place. At this moment, Lord, you have called us to remember that truth. So as we partake of these elements, Father, those of us who are redeemed by the blood of your Son, cause us to remember that we are as guilty as as Pilate was, we're as guilty as Judas was, because our sins handed Jesus over to the cross. Humble us, Father, with this truth, we pray. In Jesus' name.